Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello, and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together, and we have some great people helping us along the way. Now, the tween years are turbulent for many. Research tells us that those kids who thrive have strong connections, show resilience, ask for help when it's needed, and set realistic and challenging goals for themselves. How do we as parents and educators help them to thrive? Do we need to coddle, bullnose, and pave the way? Of course not. Tweens are more capable than we think. In fact, my next guest writes in her new book, Middle School Superpowers, that middle schoolers and superheroes have a lot in common. We learn that while both these groups get catapulted into an unknown and tumultuous world, they also can develop superpowers that allow them to navigate this jarring journey if we are there for them and we also give them room to soar. Phyllis Fagel is back on the show for a second time, and she's a licensed clinical professional counselor, a certified professional school counselor, a frequent contributor to, contributor to the Washington Post and other national publications, and author of Middle School Matters, which she was on for the first time on our podcast. She is a school counselor at the Sheridan School in Washington, D.C., and provides therapy to children, teens, and families at the Chrysalis Group in Bethesda, Maryland. Phyllis also speaks and consults on issues relating to parenting, counseling, and education. Her new book, Middle School Superpowers, is the topic of today's podcast. Welcome, Phyllis Fagel, to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm really excited to talk to you again. Oh, I'm excited to have you. So we had you on before, but if you could give us, before we jump into your new book and Raising Resilient Tweens, can you tell us what lights you up and keeps you going every single day? I think especially when you're talking about this age group, the age group that I write about, it's the fact that on a dime, a really terrible day can suddenly become wonderful. And we have so much power as adults to actually change their mindset, change how they see themselves, change the kind of person they become. So I see it as the last best opportunity to get in there and really parent kids in this age group. Mm, excellent. You know, we've heard before from previous guests that there are many things that we can do and that we absolutely should not be doing to help these kids thrive. And tween, the tween years are tough for everybody. And we know that one of the things that is really helpful for that age group and for kids throughout their childhood is understanding adaptability and being actually able to be adaptable in all different times because Life is not predictable. Things are not always going to go our way. And sometimes 
life can get a bit uncomfortable or a lot uncomfortable in middle school, as you know. So what are some key ways that we can help our kids become more adaptable aside from getting our impulse under control that we want to just like do it for them? You know, I think one of the things we need to do is first figure out what it is that's getting in their way, what it is that they're worried about. So when you have a kid maybe on the cusp of going to middle school, they're probably worrying about navigating a very different environment, maybe rising to a higher level of difficulty academically as they get into middle school. And for some kids, even before, they're also navigating puberty. So their bodies are changing. And all of this, of course, is happening at a time when they're really aware of how others are seeing them and whether or not their skills stack up or in their mind, don't stack up to other people. So there are so many things we can do to help them deal with that much change internally and externally. One of which is simply getting a good sense of what their questions are and trying to extinguish some of those small fears in ways that we can, often through exposure, taking them to that new school, having them come up with a plan for what they're going to do if they get lost, helping them figure out who they might already know and maybe some of the pros about meeting new people, and then really authentically acknowledging what they're leaving behind. For a lot of kids moving from those really warm, uh, supportive elementary years to that bigger environment is really there's a sense of melancholiness about it. They feel like they're leaving childhood behind. I think parents often feel that as well. Parents are less sure of their role too. And the more we can do to just normalize those feelings, help them figure out some strategies for managing that change and really reinforcing and understanding ourselves what it means to deal with change. So nobody has escaped change, as you pointed out, especially Mm -hmm. with everything that's happened in the world in the last few years. And we know people have a really hard time dealing with uncertainty. People would rather get a painful electrical shock than have a 50% chance of getting a painful electrical shock. And I think there's some comfort for kids in knowing that change is hard for everyone. Mm -hmm. Many of us have experienced kids who have that have trouble with that flexibility and adaptability and who may even have delayed social skills you know what we would think of as more like developmentally immature social skills and you have a chapter on super belonging it's a difficult thing to navigate when you are having trouble being adaptable as we just discussed or you're and you're having some trouble with your social skills so If we have a child who tends to do things that may repel new friendships, maybe they're extremely bossy, they play out a joke way too long, uh, they, they say some things that might be offensive, they're not reading social cues, what are some specific exercises that you think we can do or conversations that we can have that can help our children to gain some of those social skills, and then that sense of belonging. So one of the things I've noticed in the last few years, especially as kids return to school, those who are out, is that all of them feel awkward. All Mm, of them mm. feel like their social skills are weak. So this is something that applies not only to the kids who are struggling, because at any given time, any middle schooler has the potential to say something that's supposed to be funny and lands mean. And at any given time, even the most socially adept, quote unquote, popular kid can feel awkward out on the blacktop trying to enter a conversation. So 
we want to make sure that we are focusing on these skills for all kids in this age group and not making the mistake of thinking they're too old for really concrete suggestions. Mm -hmm. The key thing is that we don't correct them or embarrass them in front of siblings, in front of peers, that we do it in a way that's like loving and non-critical and non-judgmental, which is very, very hard to pull off mm -hmm. with middle schoolers because even neutral feedback can seem quite critical to a kid in that age group. Mm -hmm. So using a lot of phrases like, you know, I'm wondering, or I've noticed. I or, love your curiosity <laughs> in your, in your book. Yes. Yeah. Really showing a lot of curiosity and then sharing our own examples. Uh, I share in the book, an example of a time when somebody suggests saying that to a neighbor who has pointed out that there are a lot of leaves on their lawn, that the neighbor clearly is worried that the leaves are going to blow onto that person's lawn and they're trying to find a tactful way to suggest they clean up their yard. And it is a way for that parent to explain to a child some of those subtle nuances in communication that otherwise they might miss. Mm -hmm. And it's funny in that kind of example that you give, like I remember thinking it would be really helpful for the parent to be like, I wish I could say, or what's in the back of my mind is clean up your yard, you know, <laughs> like leave my stuff. You got to clean up your yard. What are you a mess? Why are you doing this? And then being able to step back and be like, how do you think that would land? How do you think they would reply to that? Because you know that in an example that you're giving, and that's so personal, your kid can probably help to see that perspective. Oh, I don't think they'd like that very much, or they might feel this way. And then being able to take that and use it for scripts in a different situation, maybe not right then and there, but maybe a weeks later, remember when we talked about, and how do you think it'll land? What do you think about that? I love that idea. And I love that idea of transferability that just because that one example doesn't pertain to something in their own life doesn't mean that they won't take that lesson and apply it to something else. Kids are listening to everything that you're saying. And they are grateful, actually, even if they don't show it in traditional ways, they're really grateful to have a strategy, a plan of attack. I had a student who came to me and Again, this was somebody who, to an adult observer, seemed to be doing well socially, and I knew was well-liked. And in my school setting, which is small, I had a very good sense of how the kids were doing socially. But she felt like she was incredibly ill-equipped to enter a conversation. And so we talked through, what does that look like? Maybe you stand there long enough to listen to what they're talking about. When you have a sense of the topic, then you wait for a break in the conversation so you're not interrupting anyone and you ask them a question related to something they were clearly showing interest in. And that kid tried this and came back to me and was just flabbergasted that it worked and <laughs> so excited that she had this new strategy. And sometimes getting creative can help too. If you have a kid who's really struggling working with the school, I've assigned kids a wing girl or a wing boy, somebody mm -hmm. who is really skilled socially and really extroverted who will help them enter that conversation. And that's of course done with the with enthusiasm from both sides and done subtly so that nobody is embarrassed. But anything that we can do, especially for those kids who are still very weak in social skills, developmentally, 
in relation to peers, to set them up for success is going to be so important. So also making sure we're not inviting over a kid to have, you know, a three hour marathon play date, mm-hmm. if they can barely have a five minute conversation. Good point, right? Our expectations need to be reasonable based on the skills that our kids have. Excellent. So I start something that you wrote in your book, which isn't surprising. I mean, I read with a pen and I'm just constantly writing and circling, but I start something that you had written regarding a conversation that you had had with a class about other people's feelings. And you said something like, it might seem counterintuitive, but many years from now, you may look back and wish that you had been less careless with another classmate's feelings. And it's hard to get perspective. And But I do know that this is definitely true for my experience, both as someone who has apologized to somebody else in my school, like later on, like, hey, I'm sorry, I was being such a jerk back then and someone who has been apologized to in later years. So how can we help kids to get some perspective on other people's feelings when this stage is often known to be quite self-centered? Yes, and they're all egocentric. So it's not that your kid is a bad person Mm -hmm. or has bad character. If they're not totally tuned in, they're just still really learning how to take other people's perspectives. And if we simply expect them to have that capacity, then we are not setting them up for success. And so what I talk about in that example and in that chapter, which is on supersight or the ability to anticipate how your actions today will land or what will happen on the other side of that action. One of the things I do is have kids walk through thinking about how will I feel about this in five days, in five weeks, in five months, If I do sort of a gut check against my values, is this something that is consistent with what I think is important to me, how I want to show up in the world? And not expecting them to be able to overcome all of that interference, you know, things like jealousy and FOMO and FOPO, you know, fear of other people's opinions, all of that is going to get in the way. They're going to want to do whatever is self-serving and egocentric, but simply helping them pause long enough to do some of that anticipatory decision-making so they do have fewer regrets down the line. Even for social media, I suggest that kids sit on their hands long enough to sing the alphabet, just building yeah. in some of those, frame that the bumper lanes in the bowling alley a little bit. I love that. And, and I would think that that would also apply to things like peer pressure-related risk-taking, like smoking, um, you know, drugs or drinking, things of that nature, that when somebody is proposing that they do that, they bring it out at a friend's house, they bring it out, you know, in the the back of the woods, that you also employ some of those techniques. Is that correct? Yes. And I think in a situation like that, it's sort of a different kind of anticipatory planning where we want them to imagine that that happens before it happens, before they're in that situation, and what are some plausible ways that they could get themselves out of that sticky situation? What are the decisions they would want to make when they're not feeling all of that emotional interference, wanting to fit in and everything else that comes along with being in that age group? And what are some set phrases that they can use in that moment so that they feel comfortable refusing something that they don't want to be a part of? And what are some phrases that you provide for them? 
So I love to brainstorm those phrases with kids. It mm -hmm. will feel much more organic if it comes from them. And this is something parents can do at home with their kids. I've had students say that uh, things like, you know, I have to get up really early for a so a really big soccer game. I've had them say things like, I, you know, I'm, I'm taking medication and I'm not allowed. I've had them say my parents would kill me. Mm -hmm. And these are all ideas that kids have come up with themselves. And sometimes it's really hard to say anything at all. And the best thing for them is just to extricate themselves from that mm -hmm. situation and having an exit plan is important to having a way for them to reach you in a way that doesn't out them as wanting to leave, but that you can either pick them up or if they're old enough, put them in an Uber, have them order an Uber for themselves with the assurance that they're not going to get in trouble. Mm, mm, okay. Right. So that might be uh, one of like a, a special code word, a special code symbol, or um, I feel sick. Uh, my stomach is acting up. Um, didn't yeah. I have that doctor's appointment, whatever it might be, right? It, it could be anything. I had one kid tell me that his code word with his parents was, hey, can you order pizza? Mm -hmm. There you and go. It was totally unrelated yes. to the situation. Love it. That is awesome. So you and I both wrote about mistakes. It's hard not to when it comes to, you know, both parenting and kids, right? I mean, mistakes yeah. are just part of our life. And we also taught, we also both talked about teaching kids to bounce back from those mistakes instead of being swallowed by them. You call this super bounce, which I love. And we've discussed resilience in terms of when bad things happen to us. We've been bullied. We've experienced something traumatic. But what about it for the child who has made the mistakes? They were the one who bullied. They asked for the nude photo. They made the offensive joke. How can they engage in super bounce to thrive? So first we need to make sure that we are giving them a runway back to being the kind of kid they want to be and recognize and acknowledge that all kids want to be good people. They want to do the right thing and all kids make mistakes and really communicating before they're making really serious mistakes that we expect them to make those kinds of have those poor judgments along the way and that we need them to be honest and that we will help them in those situations when they occur. Sometimes what happens is kids have so much shame that they get stuck and they can't learn or they can't acknowledge what they've done. They won't yeah. own their part. Right. So I, I, I love the, you know, asking them if sure, you know, yes, you're right. It's almost all somebody else's mistake. They made you do it, or you felt like you had to, but if you were to change one thing that you did in that situation, what would you change? Or looking back on it now with the benefit of hindsight and how it turned out, is there something that you wish you had done differently so that we are ensuring that they are learning from that mistake that they made and that we are giving them a way to also make amends with that person that they might've harmed in the case of maybe pressuring somebody to send a, a nude picture or something that they didn't want to send. So not shaming them, giving them a way back, helping them own their part, and then helping them do a post-mortem. Like what, when, when did things go off the rails? What were the signals that you missed from the other person where they started to feel pressured? What was the moment where you were not in a position where you were going to be likely to make a 
good choice. I always tell kids, get your electronics out of the bedroom because nobody makes good decisions late at night online. Yes, right. So setting yourself up for success, doing that postmortem is really important if we don't want them to make the same mistake twice. We want them to be making different mistakes the right. next time. Right, right. Excellent, excellent. And, you know, it's it's a very hard situation because we... As parents and educators, we see some, you know, see a child make one of those more, what feels like a more extreme mistake. And it's hard not to react in a way that's just like a full blow up, you know, yelling, uh, throwing it in their face. You know, how could you do this to me? Um, You know, what is the reflection on me? Because of course, in our own heads, it's what kind of parent am I to have a child who would do such a thing? Yeah. How do we get out of that cycle so that we can parent in a way that is effective? That's one of the reasons I love parent book clubs, because it's an opportunity to really sit and talk to other parents. And it doesn't have to be a book club. It can just be really engaging with other people in your community, whether it's your school or parent coffee with the principal, but really looking for opportunities to talk to other parents. Because when you do, what you realize is that all of your kids are making mistakes and they're making different mistakes, but there's no shame. They're not a bad kid and you're not a bad parent. It's an opportunity for them to learn and do differently the next time, do better the next time. So that's one piece of it. And then processing whatever it is that happened with somebody else. If you know that something is a real trigger for you, go process it with your therapist or your partner or religious figure, somebody who can help you make sense of it. So that when you do have that conversation with your child, they're not going to just completely shut down and be shut off because they're sensing that criticism and judgment. Mm -hmm. That's not to say you you can't express disapproval though. Of course you can. Yeah. I mean, you need to be able to draw the boundaries, but I think that the key is not shutting down the conversation like you just expressed, like what, what got us into this situation? What were the signs that you missed? What happened in that moment that you said yes, instead of no, and, and what would happen leading up to it? it those are all very important questions because it's more of a system that when you're not there, that next time they can think back to those questions and hopefully pause enough to make a different choice. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay. So I love the idea of helping kids learn agency and understanding that success comes from work, not luck for the most part. It was super funny to be reading along and and seeing that I was quoted and I'm like reading along and all of a sudden it's like, and according to Robin Silverman, you know, PhD or whatever, I was like, oh, wait a second, that's me. You know, and I was with my husband at the time. I'm like, that's me. (laughs) He's like, I love it. You yeah, might even be in there a few times. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I was like, there you have, yo. So it was super funny when reading along to seeing that and and talking about getting your kid involved with volunteer work and and something that they're passionate about. So for those ki- those parents who are listening and thinking, all my kid wants to do is watch YouTube and text or game, which is many of us at different times. Honestly, I am not holier than thou. I'm dealing with the same things. My kids are 13 and 14 years old. So when they're listening in and they're thinking, my kid only wants to do these things, getting them to do anything is a struggle if it doesn't involve a screen. How can we help them to gain this sense of agency? 
So it can start at home, even doing things to help in the house. It doesn't have to be some big grand. I do love the story of your own kids and picking out backpacks and school supplies for, for kids who might not have them and having them be part of that. And I think the fact that that was something that appealed to your kids for their own personal reasons is part of why they were motivated to do it. And I know you also talked about the importance of that face-to-face -face contact. So yes, the more that much. kids can see that their efforts are making a difference, the more motivated they'll be to continue doing it. So I think for a lot of kids, choosing something that has that kind of payoff where they mm -hmm. can really, maybe they're planting something somewhere or they're delivering food and there's somebody who's receiving it and really thanking them for dropping off those cans or they're picking out backpacks for same age kids in the foster care system or if they're into soccer they are doing something that involves collecting soccer balls and equipment for kids who may not have access to that equipment and really trying to make it meaningful for them some kids also have that fear of putting themselves out there. It, it has less to do with the desire to help and more to do with that feeling exposed, feeling like you have to be extroverted. It feels like a real risk. So having them do it as a family, having them do it with a good friend can help as well. Yes, absolutely. We actually took my daughter and her best friend to a place where they did they they wound up doing something like sorting potatoes and stuff like that. But it was like a food pantry, but it was like a really big food pantry. But sorting potatoes, no, like interesting, honestly, to them. But being with each other was much more interesting. So I feel like doing it with a friend, that does make a huge difference. And as the kids are getting older, there are more opportunities to do these kinds of things with them that like their passion. It's actually not like always, now it's not always a no, like, oh, they're not old enough. I mean, according to maybe the volunteer place or whatever, like yeah. now they're like, oh yeah, we would love it if you would help out with these dogs or with this special Olympics. As you get older, you start to be able to do some really interesting things. So I, yes. I think that's a great one. Uh, and actually the Special Olympics is a really good example too. For my own oldest, when he was about 14, mm -hmm. he got involved with that organization and he did get involved with a friend. It was a little less intimidating. And mm -hmm. after he did that, then he was comfortable doing one-on-one -on -one tennis lessons with um, a girl who had Down syndrome. I think I talked about that wow, maybe in that's middle awesome. school matters. Yes. So, but it did require getting his feet wet with the help of a friend, helping with that comfort level. Love that. That is awesome. And such a, a great takeaway that there are these organizations that love that age group. And when we start them young, then it becomes part of who they are. So that's great. Sometimes giving examples of kids in the news who've made a difference can help too, yes. you know, showing them that other kids their age. I share a lot of examples in the book along those lines, kids who've made documentary movies, kids who have read to dogs and shelters, and that can also get the wheels turning a little bit. And then the last <laughs> thing I'll just mention on that is that sometimes they think that their efforts don't accrue too much. And I'm thinking of a student at my school who felt like it wasn't enough that they had just raised a small amount of money at this bake sale for a cause that they were raising money for. And one of the adults who was involved with helping them organize that bake sale pointed out that while our school might have raised X amount or $100 or whatever it might have been. When you add that in with all the other schools making those kinds of donations as well, it really does add up. And mm. the kid got it, and but they needed that contextualizing. 
Yes, absolutely. I also find it fun when people can say, you know, $100 at, at this organization, and I'll ask these questions when I'm working with an organization, it's like, what would $100 give you? They're able to say, you know, that gives the, you know, a child uh, a backpack, you know, a new coat, uh, this, or this, and they list it, all the yeah. things that they are able to get with that $100. And hearing that can be so helpful because of course, while children are becoming more, uh, more able to think abstractly at this age, they still have a lot of concrete aspects to the way that they think and being able to know and see the way that they make a difference that this $30 translates to a new coat. And, you know, this extra $15 means a new backpack to them that can really help them to visualize the way that they're helping. And it's win-win because on the one hand, yes, we want them to be exercising this super agency. So they feel that sense of purpose. They feel like they can give back. But this other benefit is that at a point in time when they're so self-conscious and when they tend to zoom in on all of their own flaws and their own insecurities, and they can be really vulnerable at this age, it gets them out of their own head and focused mm -hmm. on someone else, which is so good for their mental health. Mm -hmm. Oh, I agree with that. Well, give us your top tip. After listening to what you've said today and reading your book, what would you hope a parent or educator would come away with so that they can help to light up these superpowers and engage their kids so that they become resilient and thrive? I think I want parents to understand just how much influence they have on these kids and how this is an opportunity to really get in there and teach concrete skills. I think often we err on the side of thinking a kid is depressed or anxious and sending them for mental health treatment, which not that I'm opposed to that, it pretty much benefits everybody, mm -hmm. but often it's a lower hanging fruit that we want to be looking at. It's executive functioning skills, it's anticipatory decision-making, it's social skills, it's understanding that how to set boundaries, it's understanding the difference between funny and mean. All of these things that are really skill-based can lead to that insecurity, can put them in a situation where they're lonely. And if we can target that, and as parents, we have so much opportunity to do that, we can turn out these resilient kids. Mm, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you, your book, and the great work you're doing? Sure. Uh, my website is phyllisfagel.com. And there are links to... Uh, many of my articles there and a link to the book, the new book and my last one, Middle School Matters. Mm -hmm. And I'm on social media as well, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. I don't know. We'll probably have like blue sky and <laughs> threads and who else? Threads is new. Yes, exactly. Is new as of today. Yeah. So throw it all in. Yeah, on those on those sites as well. Okay, well, we'll be providing all of your information on the show notes. So those of you who are running around, driving around, whatever you're doing, we got you. We're going to have all those links ready for you. And the show notes will be there as well. And I just want to thank you so much, Phyllis, for all of the wonderful things you've said, how you've taught us. It's always so enlightening to talk to you. You have such good ideas. And because you work directly with kids, you really have such good stories and ways to apply your strategies firsthand. And it's, it's very helpful for all of us. Thank you. 
Thank you for having me. And I'm looking forward to reading your book too. Oh, thank you. This is exciting. We both have great books coming out. That is very, very exciting. And I'm so glad to share this 2023 and uh, this new book business coming out for, for 2023. So exciting. That was Phyllis Fagel, Middle School Superpowers, Raising Resilient Tweens in Turbulent Times, available everywhere aware now. I've got my takeaways and sweet friends, I know you have yours, so let's discuss them. Come up to Facebook, go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page, or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com. I'm at Dr. Robin. I'm also on Instagram, and I'm sure all over these other places will provide the links. And if you love this podcast like I did, I hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it so other people can learn about Phyllis Fagel and all the other wonderful podcasts. Uh, podcasts that we have up there. And if they could use these strategies in their own homes, what a wonder that would be. I truly appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information about my new book, about articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, if you want to bring me in, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. There's so many great podcasts up there in the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. You probably heard something today and you said, whoops, I messed up. I didn't do that right. I didn't have that conversation. Oh my goodness, my child did this and this is what I said. And ah, I know that was not the right way to go. That's okay. We all make mistakes. That's what we come away with, right? Never forget there's always tomorrow and parenting typically provides a do-over every, every day. Every day we get it. I see you and I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices and our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.